Amen. Great to see you again today. We're continuing our study this morning through the book of 2 Samuel. And 2 Samuel is kind of the story of David once he became king. We remember him living in the wilderness, anointed as king, but never ascending. Finally, he becomes the king of Israel. And it was some of the greatest years of Israel with David as king. The nation established their capital in Jerusalem. He began the preparations for what would end up being the temple. And they achieved peace with all the nations around them. And so it was a great story. And I've enjoyed going through 2 Samuel. Of course, there was something that really messed things up when David ended up um, having an illicit affair and then killing the woman's husband to cover it up. And God confronted him through his friend Nathan and told him, man, there's going to be a price that you pay for this. I forgive you, but your life is going to be messed up in some ways from now on because you made such bad decisions. So we've seen that happening. And then we saw unfolding one of his sons had molested one of his daughters and Nobody did anything, so her brother ends up, uh, Absalom ended up killing Amnon, and David, like, basically he had to run out of the country and go live somewhere else for three years. And then David was missing Absalom, kind of, but he didn't know how to say it. Joab really pushed him to bring, you know, uh, allow Absalom to come back into the land, but David still didn't want to see him. It took another couple years before ultimately, in the end of chapter 14, Absalom finally comes in and sees David personally, and David kisses him. No record of them talking it out. You would think they would have some things to talk about, but they really didn't. But at least now Absalom is back here in the land. And we saw that Absalom was really a good-looking guy. He stood out around people as just being so good looking and he had this amazing hair that every year he cut five pounds of hair off. He was just, you know, he was, you know, the best looking guy in the kingdom. So people were glad to have him back and, you know, we don't really know how David totally felt about it, but he has him back. I mean, I imagine it would be awkward because David used to be the good looking guy, you know, back when he was younger, but life hadn't been very good to him. Now David looked more like an aging rock star and Absalom is this, wow. And so, but you think this is kind of perfect because now he's in Jerusalem. David can begin mentoring him, grooming him. People can begin understanding that, wow, we have a future because David's son, Absalom, he's going to be a great king someday. But it kind of didn't work out that way as we get to chapter 15. Because what we see in chapter 15 is the beginning of the next few chapters of a dark day in the history of Israel because an insurrection happens. A disloyalty occurs. David's own son takes him out of the kingdom. And it's, it's horrible. It was humiliating for him. It ended up being devastating for Absalom as well, a little later in the story. But we come to chapter 15, and here's Absalom, and he's 
How's he going to handle being back in Jerusalem? After this, verse 1, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. So he got some bodyguards. No big deal. He's, everyone knows who he is. He's living there in Jerusalem. So you need security. So he does. Now, Absalom, though, would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So when people were coming to Jerusalem, he would meet them at the outskirts. See, the reason that people who lived all over the place would come to Jerusalem quite often would be they had basically some legal dispute or something like that. And so David had judges who were in a position to be able to hear these cases. And if it was a really tricky case, then it could actually go right to David himself. We've already seen that happen on a couple of occasions in 2 Samuel. So Absalom positioned himself right where everybody would come into town. And he was so friendly. And so whenever there was somebody who had a lawsuit, he was, they were coming to the king for a decision. Absalom would call to him and say, hey, what city are you from? It's like great opening line. Hey, where are you from? And they would tell him and, and Absalom would say, look, your case is good and right, verse 3, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. He's like, you know, I don't, you have a great cause, but I just really don't know if these bozos can actually be of help. I'm, I, ho- I hope for the best. Let me know how it goes. But unfortunately, he goes on to say, uh, you know, oh, that I were made judge in the land and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me. Then I would give him justice. He goes, I don't really work for my dad yet, but man, if I was, I could fix this for you. But I can't, so sorry. And he'd send them on, but it says whenever somebody came near to bow down to him, verse 5, he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. He's such a, he's a politician, he's a glad hander. He's like, oh, so where are you from? Oh, what's your problem? Oh, too bad. Bummer that there's nobody like me who could fix it, but I'm your friend. I like you. After my dad messes you up, come back here and I'll hug you and we'll, you know, we'll talk about it. In this manner, verse 6, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Whoa. It doesn't even say that he intended this. Who knows? Maybe Absalom's just trying to help people. Maybe he's bored and he doesn't have enough to do. But the result of his personality was that people began to really like him. David, they didn't really know David. They got shuffled off to some of his bureaucrats and maybe they got help, maybe they didn't. But people are like, I like that Absalom. That's a guy that I can really warm up to. I, you know, I came a second time and he actually remembered my name. And it was like, hey, I'm with you. I know how it feels. Trust me. I, until recently, I was thrown out of the kingdom and had to hide because I had to do something that needed to be done and nobody else did it. That's the kind of guy I am. You can understand, right? And we would all go, yeah. I mean, you're a great guy. So the hearts of the people of Israel began to start imagining 
guy, it'll actually be, you know, doesn't David look tired? It, maybe, maybe he should just step aside. Maybe he should just get out of the way because I like this kid, Absalom. And so it came to pass. And it says after 40 years that Absalom talked to the king about going to Hebron. Um, you probably have an asterisk next to that because some of the Hebrew manuscripts say four years instead of 40. And it, you know, it also, Josephus, his translation says four and the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Bible that Jesus used, said four. So it's hard to explain how did they ever get 40 in there. Perhaps um, the 40 came because this was probably about when Absalom would have been 40 years old, if you pencil it out. This couldn't have been 40 years after he came back to Israel because he'd be older than when David died. So it was probably four years later. So he's doing this for a while. You know, he's been back in the kingdom for a while. Now he's in good graces, sort of, but he's working the crowd for another four years, most likely. And again, if you're, if you're like, oh, wait, can I trust the Bible? You can totally trust the Bible. Um, the fact that our Bible still says 40, even though people know that that probably wasn't what it originally said, they just didn't want to mess with the text. So for me, I trust the Bible even more because of the fact that they don't doctor it up to make it all line up perfectly. But it's probably four years. But he comes to his dad and he goes, hey, let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt in Geshur in Syria. That was when he had run away after killing his brother, saying, if the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. If you remember, Hebron was a place where it was really, by this time, Jerusalem had become the holiest place for Israel. But Hebron was a really special place too. They had great memories there. You know, it was in Hebron where David was first, uh, you know, crowned as king of Israel, first just of Judah and then of all Israel. That was the place where they would go to worship God when the Ark of the Covenant was there in Hebron before David ultimately took it down to Jerusalem and established that location there. So I, I'm thinking that when Absalom says to David, you know, Dad, I made a commitment to God that I would go fulfill a vow in Hebron, he was probably, David was probably thinking, man, I have great memories in Hebron. And I love that you want to go get in touch with the spirit of way back then. And so he thought, it'll be this, this is nostalgic for me, but it'll be good for you. And I'm feeling like, I think I've done well with Absalom. I think he's really got it together. So uh, if David was at all naive, he thought, cool, that's great, man, go. So he lets him go. Absalom all immediately started sending spies all throughout Israel and saying, pay attention, because when you hear a trumpet coming from Hebron, everybody should yell, Absalom reigns in Hebron. So he's, now he's getting ready to take over completely. He's got this plot. He's engineering things with people. And you know, he took 200 guys with him who came from Jerusalem, but they went along innocently, it says. They didn't know anything. 
But then in verse 12, Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the Gilonite, David's counselor, from his city, from, from Gilo, while he offered sacrifices. And the conspiracy grew strong, for the people with Absalom continually increased in number. It's building up, it's working forward. Why does he get Ahithophel? Ahithophel had been one of David's closest friends and was his closest advisor. He was known for his wisdom. Now you might go, then why would he go with Absalom? Well, Ahithophel, we believe from the genealogies, was also happened to be not only David's friend and advisor, but he was the grandfather of Bathsheba. And so he saw what David did to his granddaughter, and he's like, I'm going to take a sabbatical. He had gone back to his home, and he was ripe for Absalom to recruit him to be a part of this insurrection. And so he ends up going, and as you read on, it says that they kept increasing in numbers. And in verse 13, a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. They said, the latest polls came in and you're slipping badly. This is really, Fox News says you still have this, but, (laughs) just kidding. But they're like, things aren't looking good. Now, the logical thing at that point would be to go, we'll see. I control the military, whatever the hearts of the people are. I can wipe these guys out so easily I'm here in Jerusalem, we have a, you know, great forces, we have a fortified city there in Hebron. See, he could have fought back, but he didn't. Was it because he didn't want to defend himself? Was it because it's his son that's going against him? Maybe a combination of all those things. But once he heard that the polls aren't looking good, he said, I guess I leave. I guess I leave Jerusalem. And he began to gather everyone up, all the people that worked for him, all the servants. You can read down through this story. He began to usher them out the east end of the city of Jerusalem, down into the Kidron Valley and heading up the road by where the Mount of Olives is. And uh, Jesus came down that same road going the other direction when he was on his way to be killed on Palm Sunday. This is reversing that, and they're heading out the other direction. And he said, down in verse 14, make haste to depart, let's get out of here, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. I don't want to have a war. And then the king, down in verse 16, left 10 women who were concubines, not all these concubines, but 10 of them, to keep the house. Well, that won't work out very well, as you'll see in the ensuing chapters. But he left them there, and he got the people and headed out. And in verse 18, all his servants passed before him. And it names all these, all these people um, you know, who went ahead. It's interesting that David didn't go first. I mean, this is a sign of a true leader, where he lets the servants escape first, and he goes, I'll keep the backside here. I'll I'll make sure that everything's okay. I want everyone to get out. Then you have this interesting story about Ittai the Gittite. He wasn't Jewish. He had just recently signed up to to work with David. And here he is going with David. And David talks to him and he goes, 
it was like you were born yesterday. Why, why do you need to do this? Um, go back and, and it's cool. You came only yesterday. This isn't your battle. But Ittai in verse 21 said, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the King lives, surely in whatever place my Lord the King shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. Loyalty and longevity aren't the same thing. They don't equate. So this guy was a newcomer, but he was more loyal than some of the people who had been, like an Ahithophel, who had been with David for a long time. So David said, okay, fine. You know, um, you can go with us. And, and then in verse 23, all the country wept with a loud voice and all the people crossed over. This was heartbreaking, devastating. The king himself finally crossed over the brook Kidron and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. And then Zadok and the priests came carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They're like, David's still the one that God has anointed. So we're not staying here for when the movie star looking guy takes over. We're with David. And so they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And David said, no, guys, go back. Go back to Jerusalem and stay there. And you can read this. It's pretty touching where, you know, he says, if God wants to bring me back, I'll come back. But if this is something that God's doing, you guys need to be there. If you hear anything, you can get a message to me still. But I don't want, you know, this is kind of his separation of church and state thing. Once before in their history, Israel had brought the Ark of the Covenant to the battle as a good luck charm. And they had to learn a devastating, you know, truth from that, that war is war and faith is faith. And when you blur them too much, it can make a mess. And so he goes, you know what? You guys are the ones who are worshiping God. Stay where you are. We'll go this way. And if God brings me back, awesome. But there's no reason for you to to sacrifice the ark. We've lost it before. So he said, take it back into the city and so on. And and then uh, there was uh, the Zadok, who was the priest. He goes, get back in the city with your sons. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness, verse 28, until word comes from you to inform me. He goes, let me know when the coast is clear. So they carried the ark back to Jerusalem. David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. I can't help but imagine David leaving this city that he loved, walking up this road, weeping, and thinking of later when Jesus would come down that road and then before crossing over, he would look at Jerusalem and weep and say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets. How I long to gather you as a hand gathers your chicks, but you would not. He's like, his heart was, oh, my heart's broken for Jerusalem. That's David also. And then uh, when he heard about Ahithophel being into it, he goes, well... It's heartbreaking, but I pray that God will turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Later in in Psalm 55, David wrote about being stabbed in the back by Ahithophel, and and he talked about him, and he said, it's it's not like an enemy 
stabbed me in the back. You were my friend. We used to sit together. We used to worship God together. There was a closeness that we had. And for you to hurt me like this is devastating. So his heart's broken. But then in verse 32, when he came to the top of the mountain, which is not a mountain, it's a little hill, where he worshiped God. At that point, there was this guy, Hushai, who came. Hushai was a really smart guy. And he's like, I'm with you. And if you read on, David goes, you know what? They need some smart guys in Jerusalem. Maybe Absalom will listen to you instead of Ahithophel, because Ahithophel has this bias. But why don't you go back and do that? Plus, you can keep me posted as to how things are going. And so he's Hushai, David's friend, verse 37, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. And we'll continue to read the story as we go through the next couple chapters. But this division, this insurrection, there hadn't been any time in the life of David when everything was on the table, when devastation was like, this is it. It is falling apart. The idea of David leaving Jerusalem to head off east into the wilderness, man, the wilderness is where it started for him. And now his son has gone to where he was anointed as king, and then his son now has chased him out of the city. And Absalom's probably feeling pretty good, people are, I'm sure. Yay! But a lot of people are just devastated. Like, who wanted our history to come to this? So it's a dark, dark day in history, and there's no way you can clean it up and make it otherwise. However... As everything in the Bible is there to teach us a lesson, there are important lessons for us to learn as we look at this story. And I want to caution you against the kind of, you know, easy, cheap thinking that would just go, okay, I look at it, obviously. There's a good guy, David. There's a bad guy, Absalom. Bad guy's coming in, chases out the good guy, that guy's humble, and he'll end up coming back anyway. I know the end of the story, and so it's okay. See, the, the easy way to understand life and the easy way to understand history is to decide who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. It's why our world, by the way, is so divided nowadays, because I know there are people who totally disagree with me on certain things, And I know why. It's because they're idiots. (laughs) And it's because they're evil. And I look for every evidence to prove that. But if you really want to understand people, and if you really want, want to understand history, then you have to get to the point where you realize everyone is doing what they are doing almost always because they think they're doing the right thing. It's almost always the way they are, the way they are. When you're like, if you're a parent and your kids are rebelling, there's a reason why. There are things that they're going through. They aren't just thinking, this will sure break mom's heart. I'm going to do this. But there's a thought process that's going on where what they are doing at that moment just makes perfectly good sense. And I, I remember the story that Pastor Chuck used to tell about when he was a kid and he decided to surprise his parents by painting the garage red. 
and while they were gone. And, and then when he got home, his dad was all mad and his mom goes, wait, wait, well, Chuck, what were you thinking? He was thinking, it's gonna look so good and my parents are gonna be so proud. And, it's, and he goes, that was what my heart was. So he said, I always kept that story. And then he goes, years later when um, Brian and Cheryl's son, Char, had, he ended up like painting their house with something. And they were so mad. And Chuck goes, no, wait. She, he goes, Charlo, what, what were you thinking when you did that? And he, Charlo goes, I was thinking, man, my parents are going to be mad, but this is fun. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not always a high and mighty thing, but at the same time, it is people's opinions are more nuanced. They think what they think for reasons. And anytime you look at a situation and like this and go, Absalom was just bad. He was evil. He was, a, he was just a complete jerk. David was a good, righteous person. Then you're oversimplifying the story. You will never understand people and you will never understand history until you begin to understand nuance, that there are reasons for people doing what they're doing. Now, you can have some sympathy for Absalom just from the fact that this kid spent years out of the country because he did what nobody else had the nerve to do, punish a rapist. And so you can go, I can appreciate that. Then he comes back into the country and his dad's so dysfunctional, he's not even talking to him. So you go, yeah, that would kind of mess you up. But it, so at this point, you're either going, I, I kind of get Absalom, or you go, I get David, he's doing the right thing. And you pick sides. The truth is, they were both acting in a way that made sense from their own perspective, because almost everyone does. The people that, who have hurt you deeply in life, they didn't think that they were just trying to hurt you. They thought they were trying to do something else. Now, I think to understand you know, David and Absalom, you have to understand the fact that they had incredibly distinct and different personalities. Um, and I'm not going to get into a whole psychological thing, but if you have known many people at all, you've already learned. There are some people who are basically introverts, and there are some people who are basically extroverts. Now, all this means it's not like, oh, if somebody's an introvert, they don't like people. No, introverts love people as much as extroverts do. The difference between an introvert and an extrovert is an introvert gains energy from being alone. They gain energy by having a break, being in nature or whatever. And then they expend energy when they're around people. So it's not that they don't like being around people, it's just that they're exhausted. David was a classic introvert. Um, it's, nobody who writes that many songs could be an extrovert. Because you write psalms because you're spending time in the wilderness alone. You're living in caves, and that becomes your most creative effort. Now, you might go, well, David seemed pretty extroverted when he, they brought the ark back, and he's dancing you know, with, naked with all these women. And that's when people would look at him and go, wow, what an extroverted thing to do. David's usually not like that. But remember, he came home, and he has a big fight with his wife, and it pretty much ended their relationship at that point. Yes, he was sincerely celebrating, but it sincerely depleted him of his energy. And as a result, it had effects. 
So David is the classic introvert, and most great leaders are introverts, and, and certainly almost all artists are introverts. Again, doesn't mean they don't like people. It just means that when they're around people, it takes a lot out of them. Now, Absalom is a classic extrovert. He was energized by being around people. And you can tell the difference between this. If you go to a party with somebody else and you both enjoy the party, but you go home and you're exhausted and the other person comes home and they're like, wow. That's, what do I do now? You know, we should do this more often. We should do this again. Then that's a classic introvert, extrovert kind of mentality. An awful lot of marriages are, including my own, are an introvert married to an extrovert. It makes a pretty good balance a lot of times. But what it takes to have vision for a nation, what it takes to hear from God, what it takes to have the patience to actually design something, and this is true in industry, this is true certainly in the spiritual realm, that it's why Jesus was clearly an introvert. He loved people so much that he died for them, but what was he doing? Every chance he got, he got away by himself. It's like he was depleted from giving. Now, some of the other people were more extroverts, like a Peter, and he's like, what do we do next? Where are we going now? Oh, you're walking on the water? I'm doing it too. There are differences. So whether you agree with that or not, consider this. David was a guy who, an introvert isn't very good at forming deep relationships, especially with extroverts. Um, an introvert can have good relationships with other introverts. I saw a meme the other day that said, we're starting a new club for introverts. We haven't met yet. <laughs> but so if David, introverts are made to feel, especially with an extrovert, who like, look at Absalom. Man, this guy's great with people. David's not great with people. He never was. Um, it's partly what got him into messes most of the time. That he didn't have, like, let's talk over, you know, maybe I should discuss this with somebody. Didn't have anybody to discuss things with because that wasn't who he was. But you see him as like, as a dad feeling like, man, I, I'm sure I should say something, but it's just kind of not in my nature to go get in somebody's face and argue with them. And I don't, you know, so an introvert will sometimes just go, I'm just going to let these things go and hope nobody notices me standing here in the shadows. An extrovert is like, He's working the room. And it isn't that Absalom was devious or pretending to like people. He probably genuinely cared about people. He probably really thought what this nation needs is somebody who has some personality. And I got the looks, I got the personality, people like me, hey, this could work out really well. All we need to do is get the old guy out of the way. And so that's kind of what happened, and I think you also can't blame the children of Israel for a lot of them following the extrovert. Most people would rather follow an extrovert, even though an extrovert will never lead you anywhere, generally. But it'll sure be fun as you're going along the way. The parties will be awesome. And let's face it, some people will be happy if there's just a good party. And what vision you have for the future and what deep thoughts you have, eh, keep that to yourself. Let's just, let's just throw a party. And so to me... In this story, 
David is acting like David would act. He is acting what an introvert typically does. Now again, introverts love people. It's just that people deplete them. In fact, it's funny, sometimes people go, well, you know, since you have Justin teaching once a month, is that a big relief for you? And I'm like, I mean, and I, I, lo- I love having Justin teach because I love hearing him teach, and I, I love just seeing him grow as a pastor. And, but I'll be honest with you. Every time he preaches, I'm here. I sit in first service, great. After that, I'm either out on the deck with children's ministry. I'm talking to people. You know what's funny? After Justin teaches, I go home, and I am more tired than I am when I teach. And because I'm more talking to people, it's just, it's just who I am. That's who David was. And so if somebody wants to take advantage of somebody like that, if you're going to have an insurrection, that's a good way to do it. Because an insurrection doesn't have to plan anything. All it has to do is take something down that's already there. And I don't have to worry about Justin doing that because he's an introvert also. But, you know, it's like, you look at this and I'm going, I get where David was coming from. And I get where Absalom was coming from. And sometimes these things just happen. See, one thing about an extrovert they end up becoming slaves to popular opinion because they feed on association so much that they need fans. And so they gather fans to themselves and that validates them. But that makes them susceptible to doing not what is really called to do or or hearing from God and doing God's will. It's like you do what the people want. And as an, as, a, as an extrovert, that's a natural thing to do, but it's also a disastrous thing to do because now you are trying to decide as a leader what happens based on what the people want, and that's not leadership, ultimately. That's just like you being having a bunch of fans and you being the ultimate fan of yourself and others as well. And so it doesn't work in leadership unless somebody's very deliberately surrounding themselves by people who are able to ask the tough questions. Now, the great thing about people who are introverts is they aren't slaves to what people think of them, but they can be very prone to having the life sucked out of them, running themselves to death, letting people pressure them and and deplete them, ultimately falling into depression because they don't really often form good friendships. And so there are hazards to both. But the thing that ultimately I love about David in this story is, in the end, he didn't really care that much whether he was the king or not. He wanted to do what God wanted him to do. And he would rather walk away than to fight for something. And we already know this about David because he could have taken the throne decades before he did if he had only been willing to have an insurrection and he wouldn't do it because his attitude is, if God wants me there, he'll do it. And I love that about him. He only wants what God wants. But he also, and you know, the Bible calls, Jesus called David a man after God's heart. And, and in the end, David's the guy that Jesus brags about being related to him because there's something about this guy that in his heart, 
He truly only wanted what God wanted. He didn't lack vision, but his vision was for God and his will and his purposes and his values to be done. And that's why in the end, after this whole story winds itself down, spoiler alert, the the outgoing insurrectionist never wins. All they do is destroy the nation. All they do is destroy the body, the group of God's people. They can create some diversions, but it doesn't last because God doesn't do things that way. I mean, David, Absalom, I get them both. I don't really fault either one of them too much. But in the end, what you need is somebody who really has the heart of God and cares more about what God thinks than what popular opinion says. And that's really important, and it is in this story, and it will be as we continue through these next chapters. I think you'll see these ideas interwoven throughout the rest of everything that happens in the book of 2 Samuel right up until the final chapter. But it's something for us to learn. And I think, you know, for each of us, it's an important reminder that, you know, the Bible tells us that the church, God's people, is the body of Christ. It also calls it a building, and everyone's a brick and, and uh, you know, is put together to build this building. But the, but the important truth, and 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Ephesians, Paul talks about it as well, is the idea that we are all different. We all have different capacities. We all have different giftedness. Every one of us is special, is made a special and unique way so that we can fit somewhere in the body of Christ. And if the church becomes a place where we try to turn people into what we want them to be, the church can never be what God wants it to be. And none of us will become fake. We'll become people who decide, it's like joining a cult and wearing the same outfits. It's like that is the furthest thing from what God wants to do. See, he made you uniquely You are as distinct as an Absalom or a David or anyone else in the Bible. You have your own gifts. And when you begin to figure out who you are, then you begin to figure out where you fit as a body. The worst thing for us is to cause an insurrection within the body is for us to rebel and say, it's time for those of us who think this to do... Make those divisions, you destroy the body. It's happening to our nation. It happens to the church to a great extent. It's like somebody's different than you, great. Let them do what they do. Don't have the need to get other people to be on your side. Don't live your life in a way that your your validation depends on how many likes you get on something that you post on social media. Instead, you get with God And look in the mirror and say, God, I want to be exactly who you made me to be. And then I want to find out where I fit. Because the last thing I want to do is to try to tear down parts of the body. I don't want an insurrection. I don't want to be disloyal. I don't want to betray the rest of the body of Christ. I just want to be who I am. And that is the beauty of what the New Testament calls the church, the assembly, the called ones together. And that's something that 
we have a story like this in 2 Samuel 15 so that we can see what happens when we decide to go outside of what's best for everyone and we begin to push our own agenda and try to make other people look like us. And so to me, those are important things for us to learn for sure. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this story, even as painful as it is, it's, it's, it's happened. It happened for a reason. And you didn't make up Absalom just to be a bad guy. And you didn't make up David just to be a good guy. You show their lives for who they were. But we have an opportunity to see what happens when people who you made very differently can't find a way to work together. And I pray that that wouldn't be said of any of us. Help us to discover our giftedness. Help us to know who we are with perfect integrity. And then to know that there's a place where you want to use us within the body so that we can contribute something strong and lasting to what you want to do in this world as your story is told about the good news of who you are. Lord, if there's anyone here today who's never felt, felt like they fit in and they've never really come to you and said, I want to be myself, I want to be real, I want your spirit to work within me so that I can find what I was created for, then I pray that today they would just, in their hearts, just invite you to come in and give them the integrity to be the people that you've made them to be. And then that you would lead them to find out that actually they fit, they belong, they're a part of everything that you want to do. So we thank you and we give all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll stand.